What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? A woman after God's own heart? What does that person look like? How can I be that kind of person? Do they sin less? Do they make no mistakes? Do they have their life completely together and everything figured out? Are they liked by everyone? Do they always find success in everything they do? I would think this kind of person would be far closer to perfection than I am or could ever be. But that's not the picture the Bible paints with David's story. David was an extraordinary man, but was, as Chuck Swindoll describes him, also an ordinary man, gripped by destructive passion, rocked by family chaos and personal tragedy. I'm Joseph Williams, an intern here at West Valley Christian Church, where we exist to love God and love people. Join us as we draw courage, strength, and hope as we dig below the surface into the life of a person that the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart. We're finishing a six-week series on the life of David, and I I hope that you all have enjoyed it. You know, David really is uh, a huge figure in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are 62 chapters that are devoted to the life of David. And he's important in the New Testament as well. There are almost 60 references to David in the New Testament. He's kind of a, he's kind of a big deal. And so in the last five weeks, we have seen good David, you know, situation like Goliath and with his friendship with Jonathan and his being a good person, his is in the cave. And then we've also seen the bad David. We looked at last week the story of David and Bathsheba. And then his, his uh, attempt to cover it up with Uriah. And so good David was pretty good and bad David was pretty bad. And so this morning we're going to finish this series. Uh, but the reality is we're, we couldn't even come close to covering the life of David. Now before we pick up David's story uh, where we left it off last week, I, I want to start by, by asking you a question and then telling you a story. Uh, the question is this, and I don't need any responses out loud right now. Okay, but well, just think in your head, have you ever done anything so bad that it kept you awake at night? Okay, some of you were thinking, just last night, how did he know? Okay, but no, seriously, how many of you, not, not how many, I don't want to see hands, okay, probably all of us, but as you think about it, we have probably all done something in our lives that has kept us up at night, and so I thought I'd share a few of Rob's stories with you that he's shared with me over the years. Now, so I I know this may be hard for some of you to believe, but I've made a few poor choices in my life, okay? Um, I've made a few, and I'm going to tell you one from my childhood, because those are safer, and uh, I apologize. Some of you may have heard this story before. I know my parents have heard this story before. Uh, They lived it. Um, But anyway, I'm going to tell you this story. If you've heard it before, try not to fall asleep anyways. But when I was a kid, I was probably seven or eight years old. And for some reason, I decided that it would be fun to play with fire. And uh, yeah, it wasn't a really good idea. But anyway, um, I I know what you're thinking. Who's watching this seven or eight-year-old, right? As I'm starting to begin the story, who's watching it? Well, it was probably supposed to be my older brother or my older sister. And truth be told, 40 years later, I have no idea where they were. I just know they weren't watching me. 
And so I decided I was going to play with a little bit of fire, and I had acquired some matches. Uh, you don't need to know where I got those, but I had acquired some matches, and I'd gone outside, and I got some twigs, and I brought them inside my house. See, I wasn't even smart enough to play with this fire outside in the front yard. I was so dumb, I sat down on my couch, and I took these matches out, and I, and, I, and I lit the match, and I lit the twig on fire, and I sat there and held the twig and smiled at it for not very long, but it didn't take very long for me to realize this is a really dumb idea. And so I quickly blew out that twig, and I, I thought things were safe, but what I didn't understand as a child about that twig is this. Even though you have blown it out, it is still dangerous. And so I had blown it out, and I had just set it down on the couch next to me, on the, on the cushion that was right next to me. And a couple seconds later, I realized what a bad mistake that was, because I realized my couch was burning. Okay? Now, it wasn't a big burn. It wasn't a lot. It was just the size of a couple of quarters, maybe. I mean, 40 years later, I don't really remember. But it was, it was pretty small. I just knew that it was pretty substantial. Okay, And so uh, I don't even know if you could do this with today's modern couches, but I did what any seven or eight-year-old kid would do at the time. I took the cushion, I turned it over, and I hoped that my parents would never notice. Okay, <laughs> You could get away with that in this couch. And so I turned, the, I turned the cushion over, I set it there, and I left it. You know, and, uh, and I just went about my day, and the problem was I couldn't think about anything else. That was all I could think about all day. Uh, as I went to bed that night... That was all I could think about. I remember laying in my bed. Now, this is true. Like 40 years later, I could still remember it plain as day, laying in my bed. And that's all I could think about was the fact that I had put a hole in the couch. And so um, eventually, I don't know how long I, I had laid in bed, but eventually uh, I got up from my bed. I went to my parents' room. I woke my parents up, and I told them about what I had done. Because that was the only way I was ever going to get to sleep ever again in my life, was I knew that I had done something bad, I knew I had done something wrong, and I had to just get it over with. I had to just tell my parents. Now, the truth is, honestly, as I was writing my sermon this week, this is what I realized. If I had just been a little smarter, I could have left it there. And when my parents eventually found it, they totally would have blamed my older brother. Okay? <laughs> like, if I would have just said, I don't know anything about it. They totally would have blamed him, and it's true. I mean, it totally would have been blamed him. But anyways, I couldn't sleep. And so I told my parents what I had done. Last week, Pastor Rob, we looked at the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. At the end of his sermon, we looked at the story of David and Bathsheba. And then David and his... his um, attempt to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. And something tells me the events of 2 Samuel chapter 11 led to some sleepless nights for David. And so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go into 2 Samuel chapter 12. As a matter of fact, if you, have a, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and one of the ushers will, will bring a Bible down to you. But before we go to 2 Samuel chapter 12, um, I, I want us to notice the very last verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, it says, After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, so that's Bathsheba, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. That last sentence is so important as we look at our sermon today. But the thing David had done 
displeased the Lord. You know, no one, uh, we don't know, I, I don't know that anybody knew completely David's sins. I don't know that there were probably some people that knew some of his sins, but I don't know that there was anybody that knew everything that he had done. And yet 2 Samuel 11 verse 27 tells us, you know what, most importantly, God knew. God knew what David had done. From a worldly perspective, it would seem that David had had not only sinned, but David was getting away with it. He had stolen Uriah's wife. He tried to cover it up, and then he had had him killed, and it seems like David is getting away with that. Sometimes that happens in life, doesn't it? Where we see people that, that we don't think are really great people, and they're doing horrible, horrible things, and they appear to be getting away with it. And yet 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27 reminds me, as I look at my own life, And it reminds me as I see those people that appear to be getting away with things, that guess what? God sees it all. God sees it all. David's sins were noticed. They may not have been noticed by man, but they were noticed by God. And this is so important for us because the sins that David committed, they were evil in the sight of the Lord. And God wasn't pleased. And you know what? A few thousand years later, God's attitude towards sin hasn't changed a bit. The things that displeased God in the Old Testament are still the things that displease God today. The things that displease God in the New Testament are still the things that displease God today. You know, our society changes. And the morals of societies, they change But God's values are eternal. God's values don't change. And so when I read 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, it's not a warning for me to you. Man, it's a warning to me and my own life. That you know what? Sin still displeases God a couple thousand years later. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 6 Verses 7 through 10 says this, says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. What are powerful words? Whoever sows to please the flesh from, their fle- from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. I don't know what sticks out to you in those verses that I just read, but what I read and what sticks out to me is this, sin brings destruction. Maybe not immediately, But eventually, it's going to come. It also tells me, you know, God, he may not settle his account with us every day or every week or every month, but there's going to come a day where that account is settled. It also reminds me that we can hide our sins from some people. We can hide our sins from everyone else, but God can't be fooled. And so as we look at David today in 2 Samuel chapter 12, I think we're going to see a guy who maybe has spent a few nights awake. Maybe a guy who's spent a few sleepless nights 
wishing it was something as simple as waking up his parents and telling him he'd burnt the couch. Because I think there's a little bit more to it. You know, um, many of the, the Psalms, we don't know necessarily when they're written. But Psalm 32, to me, um, it kind of makes sense that it's a psalm that was written um, in the midst of David's, the time in between, I guess, 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, starting in verse 1. It says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. So, so far, good news. Everything is going great at this point. But then we get to verses 3 and 4. It says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Verses three and four to me are, are probably what I, is what I think of David probably feeling like after his sin of chapter 11, that he kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Uh, Pastor Rob has alluded to, to Chuck Swindoll's book on David uh, several times through this series. And, and uh, in his book, Chuck Swindoll uses the Living Bible translation for Psalm 32 in verses three and four. And this is what it says in the Living Bible. It says, there was a time when I wouldn't admit what a sinner I was, but my dishonesty made me miserable and filled my days with frustration. All day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water on a sunny day until I, until I finally admitted all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. You know, in Psalm 32, David is in misery because of his sin. And as I, as I think about sin in our lives, forget, let's not think about sin in David's life anymore. Sin in our lives. Sin is a thief in our lives. Sin is a thief. It robs us of our joy. It robs us of our hope. It robs us of our future. And I really do believe that is the mindset that David probably has in 2 Samuel chapter 12 as we get to it. Because if you go to go ahead and turn back to 2 Samuel, see, we often look at things in the Bible and go, oh, chapter 11 follows right away after chapter 12. You know, chapter 12 follows right after 11. It must have happened like that. But as you notice, there were some things that happened in that verse 27. So we don't know how much time took place between 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel chapter 12. But we're going to start in verse 1 in 2 Samuel 12. So says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this 
deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. So David hears Nathan telling the story and he becomes angry. He's indignant that the idea of this story could even happen And then Nathan reveals to him, this story is about you, David. This story is about what you have done in your life. And I'm sure that wasn't very pleasant. Or or he probably wasn't very excited about hearing that story. And yet, this week as I was thinking about it, if if Psalm 32 verses 3 and 4 kind of reflect what's going on in David's mind after his sin, there's a part of me that wonders, not right away, But there's a part of it that wonders after hearing this from Nathan and knowing that Nathan knows what he had done and Nathan confronts him, part of me wonders if there isn't a little bit of David that's relieved. I wonder if there's a little part of David that's relieved because his sin isn't hidden anymore. His sin isn't just kept between in his mind. I wonder if there's some relief knowing that somebody else knows what he did. I'm not sure, but we'll come back. We'll come back. Let's continue the story in verse 11. And we're going to read to verse 25. It says, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, maybe the most important verse in this chapter. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How could we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house and at his request, they served him food and he ate. David is going to find grace and we're going to talk about God's grace. Uh, But the first thing that we need to notice here this morning, and and we already kind of discussed this a little bit, is you know what? There are consequences to our sin. There are consequences to our sin in David's life 
It led to all kinds of calamity. It led to all kinds of problems with his family. And obviously, the thing we notice the most is that the child was born to Bathsheba dies. And he's told that strife isn't going to happen behind closed doors, but it's going to be all right out there in the open for everyone to see. And so the immediate consequence of his sin, like I said, is the death of that child. And you know, that's what the Bible tells us about sin, that there are consequences. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ears too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. You know, as Christians, we're forgiven of our sins. But our sins still cause a problem in our relationship with God. You know, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. What we deserve is death. Now, the good part of that verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But you know what? We can talk about grace, and we will talk about grace, but I'm not sure that we fully are able to understand God's grace in our lives until we understand the depth of sin and the destruction of sin and the problem of sin. Once we understand that, I think we have a better ability to really truly understand God's grace. There's another verse I want to go to Acts chapter 3. Because if you remember in that verse, verse 13... What does David say? I have sinned against the Lord. What does Nathan say in response to that? Your sins are forgiven. So there are consequences to our sins, but the truth is repentance brings refreshment. Repentance brings refreshment. In in Acts chapter 3, Peter is talking to a crowd of Jews, and um, he he has just healed a, a crippled beggar. And he's amazed. Uh, The people are amazed at what Peter's done. And it gives him the opportunity to preach the gospel to these people. And he tells them what Jesus has done for them. And in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 17, this is what what he says. says, now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had told through all the prophets, saying that this Christ, his Christ would suffer. Verse 19, repent. Then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. What an awesome verse. The idea that, that what we need to do is repent, and that times of refreshing will come. I, I think repentance leads to forgiveness, which leads to that relief. And in our story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, um, I, I already think David was probably dealing with the effects of sin. And, and then as Nathan confronts him, he's even more struggling with the effects of his sin. But I think we, we understand that David understood about forgiveness. That's where Psalm 51 comes in. Turn to Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, in the little notes, right under where it says Psalm 51, it says, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. This is what David wrote. After he's confessed his sin, I've sinned against the Lord, and after he's heard, your sins are forgiven. 
It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. This is a guy who is repenting of his sin. He is coming clean before the Lord. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Listen to verse 17, really important verse here. It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Verse 17, such an important verse for us. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David is admitting his sinfulness. He's admitting his need. He's asking for mercy. And and I believe God is going to give it to him. And so in our sin, you know, God isn't looking for us to do heroic things, to get back in his good graces. What he's looking for is he's looking for repentant hearts. He's looking for repentance. And and so as we look at this story, we're going to come to what I I think is the most important thing for us to learn from the story today, and maybe the most important thing in this whole series on David, and that's this. You know, when we admit that we are sinners, we can experience God's grace. When we admit that we are sinners, we can experience God's grace. Um, this is so important because if you go back in your heads to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, what does David do? He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan doesn't lay out a million things that he needs to do before he finds forgiveness. Still inside of verse 13, Nathan tells him, your sins have been forgiven. How awesome is that? He truly is repentant. I've sinned, you are forgiven. His admission led straight to that forgiveness. He didn't have to work for it. He didn't have to accomplish great things for him. He didn't have to punish himself for days in order to find that forgiveness. He didn't have to do acts of service or acts of charity in order to find forgiveness. He admitted his sin and he was forgiven. Now he still had consequences and the consequences were big, but the most important problem with sin, that broken relationship with God was fixed simply by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. You know, as, I, as you think about some of the greatest characters in the Bible, you realize that, that just about all of them were pretty messed up. Just about all of them made some pretty serious mistakes, like, like guys like Abraham. 
Abraham, we know him because he's the patriarch of the Israelites. And yet, as you look at the Old Testament, he continually had a hard time telling the truth about who his wife was. Uh, you, we know Moses. Why? Because Moses led the Israelites out of, e- out of slavery in Egypt. But if you look at the story of Moses, Moses had some anger management issues. Okay? And that led to him killing an Egyptian. And yet God still used him. We've looked at the life of David here. We've looked at the mistakes that David made, and yet God still used him. In the New Testament, we think of Peter being this great person, the, you know, the rock that the church is built on. And, you know, we, we know of him as preaching the first sermon in Acts chapter 2 that led to thousands being saved. And yet he's the same guy that denied Jesus three times. In the midst of denying Jesus three times, it says that he called down curses on himself, like for emphasis. And yet God still used him. You know, we think of the Apostle Paul. I would say that he's the greatest missionary in the history of the church. Okay, he wrote much of our New Testament. And yet we also read in the book of Acts that before he became a Christian, Paul or Saul was there persecuting the church. And that even as Stephen, the first martyr, was killed, it says that Saul was there giving approval. And yet God still used him. And I think Paul more than most, really, truly understood God's grace in his life. Listen to this version, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Write it down, read it, read it later. But it says this, says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointed me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, so he's saying all these things that he used to do wrong, that he was. It says, but I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Here's the key words for me. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. When I, when I read that verse this week, and I was thinking of the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, I was thinking of like, some, like a flow of water that just overtook you. You know, like if I was sitting in a chair and someone just poured a whole bucket of water all over me. That, that's what I think of when I, when, I, when I read this verse. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, when I read that verse, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. That's Paul's life. But as I think about for us, I think, you know what? That is exactly what God still wants to do in our lives. He, He wants to pour his grace down all over us. He wants to cover us in his grace. And that's really the message that that we need to hear all the time. And isn't that the message that our world needs to hear? That that is what God is offering. God isn't offering judgment and condemnation, but that he's offering grace and mercy and hope. One of my favorite books about grace is uh, the book, What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. And in it, he tells this story about C.S. Lewis. He says, during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, was unique to the Christian faith. They began by eliminating possibilities. Incarnations, or incarnation, not carnations, the flower. Incarnation, other religions had different versions of God's appearing in human form. Resurrection, 
Again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about, he asked, and heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's loving coming to us, or God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. This morning, as we're wrapping up David's life, uh, and as we're thinking about what, what he went through, just as God showed grace to David and forgave him of his sins, God is ready to do that for us as well. If we haven't made that decision to follow him yet, he's waiting to cover us, to to pour that grace upon us. He's waiting to do that right now. And if we're here this morning, we're Christians and we're struggling with sin, because guess what? Even as Christians, we're going to continue to struggle with sin all our lives. You know what he wants from us? He wants us to come before him and just say, Father, I have sinned. Just like David did in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And what he's going to respond to us with is his grace. And so this morning, my simple encouragement would be this. If you haven't received God's grace already, receive it today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. I thank you for the hope that you've given us. Um, I thank you for allowing us, Lord, to spend the last six weeks looking at the life of David. And I pray that uh, what we will take away the most is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, I have sinned. But not just that, but Nathan's response, that your sins are forgiven. Lord, I pray that, that we would accept that forgiveness today, accept your amazing grace in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at WVCCH. If you'd like more information about our church or services, please visit our website, WVCCH.org. Thank you for listening. You forget all my rebellions.